Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how goes it? It's going pretty well. A little chilly outside, but it's good to be here inside the black box, nestled, Wormtown. Tis chilly, Lance, and uh, we have a really, really interesting chat today with a guy named Lee Purchase, and, and that isn't his real name, Lance, as you know. He uh, goes by a pseudonym for the podcast that he does that is called Slim Turkey. And Slim Turkey is an incredibly interesting name. It is not suggestive of what it is about. It is a true crime podcast. It is the murder of Richard Adderson. It was a road rage incident. I think it's the first documented case of road rage in history, and this happened in 1995. On the East Coast, at least it is. Uh, it, this had been happening a little bit on the West Coast, but that is one of the bigger reasons why this made news here on the East Coast. And it was the first one in the state of New York. It happened in Fishkill, New York. There was a little fender bender on I-84 in Fishkill, New York, and Richard Adderson and this other driver got out of their cars and started arguing a little bit. Richard Adderson was shot ended up getting killed. Now, people might be asking, what is it about this case that is worthy of its own podcast and it's worthy of us bringing attention to it? And it's not just because it's a man who is looking into this case and he wants justice for Richard Adderson. He's a, he's a police officer. That's right. And he's way out of his jurisdiction with this. And uh, I think that's pretty amazing. And so that's why he goes under a pseudonym. The killer of this Richard Adderson apparently was driving a green Jeep Grand Cherokee and it had New Hampshire plates. And that was one of the things about this case because it happened in New York, but the killer was likely from the state of New Hampshire. And there's a 911 call. Richard called 911 from his car as he was dying, gave them some information. We don't know what was exactly released to the public, but we do know that there was a partial plate number that was out there uh, that wasn't officially released, but he gave it. 
and these this is all information that you learn when you listen to the podcast and it's great because you get the case information and you also get some back and forth between Slim Turkey and Lee Purchase. Yeah, so check it out. It is a really interesting podcast and of course we have a lot of listeners in the Northeast and New Hampshire specifically, so they have never identified this killer. Okay, and quick reminder, check us out on Stitcher Premium. We're putting all the back catalog of Crawl Space on Stitcher Premium. Folks, it costs a lot of money to keep this uh, these episodes up online, so Stitcher is doing us a solid and uh, paying for that for us. It's a savings that we are passing off to the listeners because you don't just get back catalog of Crawl Space. What else do you get? You get some Missing Maura Murray. You get our other show, Empty Frames, which is about art crime. And you get uh, endless comedy albums. True Crime Garage has a show that they do called Off the Record. There's really a lot on Stitcher Premium. So just check it out, stitcherpremium.com, and consider subscribing. Four ninety nine a month. You get a free month with code MMM. Well, that's wonderful because we're not just going to make somebody go out there and subscribe right off the bat. See if you like it. If, if it's not for you. There you go. You don't have to pay the four ninety nine a month, but tell you what, those uh, creator commentary of Missing Maura Murray, those are more educational for you and I, I think, than we thought. They're fun. We get to go back and listen to the old episodes. We can give ourselves a fair amount of grief, but we've been finding that we're adding to some of the information that's out there. We're correcting some of the information that was put out there, and we have the occasional guest appearance with our buddy, cameraman Joshua F. Leonard. He comes in and talks with us for a little bit while we're listening, so it's a really uh, really good retrospective. Okay, so check that out and enjoy this episode. Please subscribe to Slim Turkey and follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. All these links that you're going to need are in the show notes, so just click on them there. And thank you very much for listening. How publicized is this case now compared to back then? Um, well, it's lost any sort of traction in the media. Uh, when it first happened, America's Most Wanted covered it in 1997. And then Unsolved Mysteries had an episode, I believe, in 1998. So it was a big deal. And one of the reasons why was that after the term road rage was coined, this um, incident was the first fatal road rage incident in New York State. So you had the governor of New York at the time, uh, Governor George Pataki, who you know got some legislation uh, signed within New York State to combat you know road rage. Um, so. There were a lot of there was a lot of coverage at the time, and then especially about a year afterwards, when the police released the information that the suspect at least identified himself as a cop to Richard Anderson. Right. So, you know, that was another that was another piece of information that probably captivated everyone the possibility that this guy could have been an off-duty New Hampshire cop who got involved in a road rage incident and then wound up shooting, killing, and then running. But interestingly, 
Richard's son went to work for a local newspaper up in Dutchess County called the Poughkeepsie Journal. And while he was there, he pitched the story to have a 20-year anniversary story covering, you know, the murder of his father. Um, And I believe that that has been the last real article giving any attention to the Richard Addison case. Okay, but now Lee Purchase is on the scene. Now Lee Purchase, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I don't know how much impact the podcast is having, but my whole intention is is really to to keep it out there. And I was just listening to um, to your show and to your guest who who covers the disappearance of the girl in Canada. Her name is Emily. Oh, Emma. Emma, yes. And you know what he was saying to you guys is is really my in my sentiment exactly. The more you can keep the uh, the story out there and keep talking about it, I think that ultimately helps to um, in whatever way you can, you know. But it it helps to keep it out there and in the hopes that someone is going to hear it and maybe will come forward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, let, you want to go back to the details of, of Adderson's case, just for um, the listeners who don't know what this case is. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, are we actually doing the interview now? I don't know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you, uh... um, yeah, no, whatever you guys want to do, listen, I, even though I sent you that email asking if you would, be a guest on my show. I I want to just tell you one thing, um, and this is really heartfelt. I have to get it out there. Missing Maura Murray was the first podcast that I had ever listened to, and that was February 2018. Um, and after listening to it, you guys really inspired me to begin my own show. So I owe you guys a double thanks for not only the inspiration, but then to actually agree to be on my show so i really want to thank you and um this means a lot to me wow well awesome. thank <laughs> yeah thanks a lot that that means a lot to us and uh I, you know you, your show is really good and uh you know we, we we do get some requests from time to time but i think your show is different not only just because of the title of it but uh you're a police officer. You're you're a current day police officer, and I think to me, that is sort of validation a little bit of what we do at here at Missing More Murray and Crawl Space. And I I also th- think that I'm not I'm not sure that that's happened yet. A true crime podcast done by a current police officer on a case out of outside of his jurisdiction, and you're going under a pseudonym. And I just really think it's a kind of like a cultural moment yeah it's a remarkable yeah it's a cultural moment it's a remarkable moment but it's a great show and there's like a genuineness to it that is really appealing and i hope a lot of ears get turned to to this show it's a sad case and and you're doing a great job uh covering it so far and 
it's it's really infuriating. And so I think this uh, that your podcast and I definitely wouldn't underestimate the impact that it can have. This this story pisses me off. It's first of all the whole incident is tragic, and then for Richard Anderson, who is the you know the victim in this, to crawl back to his car. This was in the early days of cell phones. Um, he crawls back to his car to get his cell phone, and he calls 911 and winds up staying on the phone for nine minutes. And in those nine minutes, he provided the 911 operator with a wealth of information. Unfortunately, and this this is one of my biggest problems with the, uh, the, the police, is that they've never released the full transcript of that 911 call, and they've never released more than 20 to 30 seconds of it. And I can actually understand why you wouldn't release the call itself, right? Because there's a lot of emotion, I'm sure. Um, they did release one, they released one part of it where Richard is telling the 911 operator, I didn't deserve this. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But if you release the transcript and put some more information out there, I don't, I don't see what the harm is, especially after so much time has passed. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, what you said, that that has become infuriating to me because I don't see any harm in it. And if you want to release the transcript and redact information, I, you, the only thing that I could ever think of was that Richard Addison possibly gave a partial license plate number. That's what I believe, and that's just a theory, and I could be 100% wrong. But within five days of his shooting, New York State Police were up in Manchester, New Hampshire. So they had some lead that brought them right up to um, Manchester. And why Manchester, out of all places? So they go up to Manchester and say, say Richard did release a partial plea, and it brought them up there. So redact that because they're always gonna they're always gonna be people with that you know pitchfork mentality, burning whatever you know to try to go and and be a vigilante for sure. Cover that information. I understand that would that could potentially lead to some innocent person being um, you know misidentified as the killer. Don't release that information, but release release more information that would really engage the public in helping to solve this crime. Totally agree. Yeah, the, to think that there's a nine-minute call and only about 30 seconds has been out there is is disappointing. I, I kind of thought maybe because this killer seems to have told Richard Adderson that he was a cop, I thought my, my head went to they probably didn't put it out there because he might have said it a few more times and kind of the exact same thing that that you said you don't want uh, the people with pitchforks getting angry well I think a lot of that anger would have been directed towards the police if they heard him say that and I think there is still a pretty good chance that this guy the killer was not a cop yeah you know it's I um I related to my own personal experience and before I was a cop, I remember um, I lived in, in Queens, New York at the time, and I had school, and then I had an internship, and I was coming home late one night, and the train was, it was, it, it, 
pretty much had no one on it. I think maybe five people. And some guy was doing something to this woman. And I walked over to the guy and I just said, very matter of factly, please don't make me come back on duty. And the guy got a little scared and he moved cars. I didn't say I was a cop. I wasn't a cop at the time. I sort of implied it. And I think that I did because I just got excited and scared. There were a lot of emotions running through me at that point. And I said it. And that could have been the same mentality that this person had. He got scared. He was uh, using it as an intimidation tactic. Yeah. And Richard Adderson was a big guy. He was about 6'1", 6'2", well over 200 pounds. He was a black belt in judo. Um, So he knew how to take care of himself. And, you know, he was just an imposing presence. And, And this guy was described as six feet tall, thin, maybe even on the frail side. Um, and it's easy to get it's easy to get intimidated in yeah. those situations, especially when, you know, people lose their cools. Yeah, I wanted to talk about his appearance a little bit because this is what tells me, or at least makes me lean in the direction that he's not a police officer. Because uh, the composite sketches, he looks just like, uh, like you said, frail. Like, I don't know. I, I haven't seen many police officers that are frail. I he think. looks like an accountant. Yeah. I mean, I think, and you can speak to this, but I think most uh, police officers are probably encouraged to uh, stay in very good shape and work, at least work out and not be frail. Is that accurate? No. No. So my first impression when I heard that he could possibly be a cop And then you talk about age. So he was described anywhere from 40 to 50 years old. And then another description came out that said he might have been in his late 40s to early 50s. You know, just like we're all individuals, um, cops are all individuals as well. What I thought was that it could have possibly been a police officer who had been on the job for some time, had uh, risen the ranks, and was no longer dealing with the public on a daily basis. Someone who may have been behind the desk or ahead of a ahead of a department could be in his fifties. Okay, and that physical description didn't make me think that this wasn't a cop. I thought it was very possible that it could have been a cop of some power who had risen the ranks in whatever department he was in. I think that's an interesting point. Um, I just want to mention the other couple of things that made me think it was probably not a cop. And again, I I need you to uh, speak to this for me because I don't know many cops personally, but the eyeglasses uh, seems like like police officers, um, at least today, I would imagine, would be encouraged to wear contacts or get LASIK surgery. I I would have to, and if he's in an administration role, I guess this doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, as an officer, I just think you would you would not want to have glasses on because that could hurt you, your ability to do your job, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, w- I would agree with that. But then you can make the case that he was an older gentleman. Let's assume he was in his late 40s, early 50s. It's already dusk. Some people have a problem driving. 
um, with the glare. Maybe he was wearing glasses to to drive. Um, and I'll tell you, just me personally, when I do patrol, I will go out with funny-looking glasses just to throw people off. They don't. They're never. You know, they're never expecting a, a police officer to show up wearing funny-looking women's glasses. It, it takes them back, you know, and it allows them, at least my experience, it allows them to see me as a person and not a cop. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I mean, we're, if we're talking about the glasses thing, maybe he did wear contacts while he was on duty, and then he popped those out and put the glasses on as he drove home or something. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. Presumably, driving through New York State with New Hampshire license plates, he was off duty, right? So, Oh, good point. It doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, I guess so. You said earlier you didn't see the harm in releasing more of the 911 call. Were you saying that as a, as a police officer or as a citizen? As a citizen. You know, when I was thinking about speaking with you today and putting myself in that situation. Now, I am not a high-ranking police officer by any means. Um, and as a citizen, I would say, yeah, release that information. I don't know if I would ever want to be in the situation, in that high rank, where I would have to make that decision. That's a tough decision to make because ultimately the police department wants to keep their investigation close to their own best and control it. Once you start releasing a lot of information to the public, you are inevitably, as a police department, as an investigator, or as a detective, you're losing a little control of that investigation. And ultimately, that can impede the investigation. So as a citizen, I say, yeah, release it all. If you don't want to release the emotional 911 call, release the transcript. Redact whatever you have to do. But fortunately, I'm not in that position where I would have to make that decision. So I'm, I guess inevitably I'm looking at this homicide and the investigation as a police officer, but I try as much as I can to look at it from the other perspective as well. Okay, that kind of leads me into my other question. Um, you had also said that you didn't want to, and I understand the the notion and the discouragement of creating a pitchfork mentality, but what what is worse than giving a general description of Jeep Cherokees with a general year um, span, like from 95 to 97, green Jeep Cherokee? So now you have people looking for this, a wide range of vehicles. Why wouldn't you say with the beginning license plate number of this. I mean, that narrows it down significantly. And if anyone sees that on the road, then if the person is not involved in it, I mean, I just feel like, I just feel like the, the location would happen. So would happen much, much more quickly. And the collateral damage would be a lot less than, than like seeing a green Jeep Cherokee, 90, 1996 green Jeep Cherokee and not, knowing what the license plate number was. I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, 
idea. Not why? Why release that information? I mean, what if he was wrong? He said, like, if if they were trying to conceal a partial license plate or a license plate. I mean, this is a dying man with adrenaline running through him. I mean, he just might not have been right, or they were afraid if he was wrong, which I would say is pretty likely in that scenario. That uh, you know, that they would point the finger at someone else. Yeah. No. I mean that that was a big risk that they took, but. So I, I, I'll tell you a couple of things about why I believe the police were not even hesitant in believing that it was a green Jeep Cherokee. One, he apparently was in the market to buy one. Um, so he had a 1995 Volvo. It was 1997. He had a 1995 Volvo, two years old. Um, he was in the market for a green Jeep Cherokee. And when I spoke with his son, his son told me, that he was the type of guy who just he knew cars. And then you look back in 1997, and it's not looking like the highways of 2018 or 2019. There weren't really a lot of SUVs out at that time. So I did, I did my own check to see what was out, like an Isuzu Trooper, which looked pretty similar to a, a Cherokee at that time. Um, but there weren't all of these SUVs out. So the Jeep Cherokee at that time was very distinct, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what motivated police in releasing that information, at least. It's really frustrating um, because it does seem like there are so many things that should have led to an arrest here. And we were talking in the office before we started recording, and it's like, well, there was some damage on this Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee, and if they brought it to a mechanic, then that mechanic should have been a little suspicious had they heard of this murder. I mean, how far away did he drive to to get it looked at by an auto body mechanic? You know, that that's just one one aspect that's weird to us. What, what if he sold it? That kind of w- would have been a red flag, especially if they had a partial plate. I just feel like this this car should have been identified one thing that I can tell you is that there was very minimal damage on the on the Volvo. Right. So Richard's son was telling me that he still drives that Volvo. And it's actually, it, it brings him back to his memories of his dad when he's driving the Volvo. But uh, the Addison family wasn't allowed to repair it for a long time because it was still evidence in this case. But when you look at the damage, it's so minimal. This Presumably, was a, a, a just a minor side swipe, and that damage on the uh, Jeep could have been a scratch. It could have been a slight dent. Say you have people looking for major damage, then they were looking in the wrong direction because there wasn't a lot of damage to the to the Volvo itself. And the, but the damage was on the side of the car. The damage was on the um, the driver's side of the Volvo. It almost seems like these two cars were were changing lanes at the same time and kind of rubbed against each other, maybe. Yeah, could have been, could have been. But you're you're also you're going sixty miles an hour or whatever. That's, the you know there should be some damage or at least some paint chips. But yeah, I guess it's hard to say. You know who knows? I, this guy might have had a family member who was in the business. Do me a favor and just repair the car real quick, or or give it a quick paint job. I, I, I don't know. It's all speculation, but I'm I'm assuming that there was damage. 
I'm assuming that the police did find green paint on the Volvo at some point, but it's really a needle in a haystack, you know, when you're looking to another state. I think that that was probably the least um, potential clue that they could follow. I think that they had so many more clues that were available to police at that time that could have solved the crime. Did you approach police in person about getting more information about this? I did. I did. And um, so thank you for reminding me. That was actually another condition in doing this podcast that I could never announce to anyone that I was a police officer. So I couldn't use my, you know, my position to get in any doors. So when I approached the New York State Police, I had called them up. Um, I had already, I had already filed a foil with uh, New York State Police, and then I spoke to the investigator who was handling the case. He had inherited the case, obviously, because he um, he wasn't a new cop, but he wasn't around since 1997. Long story short, I went into the barracks up in Wappingers Falls, New York, and I sat down with him and started talking. And then maybe 10 minutes into the conversation, I did mention to them out of, I, as a professional courtesy, I just want you to know that I am a police officer myself, but I'm not doing this. I'm not undertaking this in any professional capacity. Um, I just want to give you a heads up that I'm a cop. And that, changed the dynamic of our conversation. I thought that maybe by saying that they would be a little friendlier, but the investigator who I don't really have much of a problem with, it was his supervisor who I had the biggest problem with. And she um, was almost like a slap in the face that another cop may be doing a podcast on an investigation that's been going on for 20 years. And um, I just, yeah, it, it, it was eye-opening. And they, the New York State Police had just, like I said, had just done an interview with the reporter from the Poughkeepsie Journal the year before, where they opened up a lot, uh, about some information like I said, all the coverage has been superficial, but they did open up about some stuff. And in my meeting that I had this past summer, I got the response, you know, we can't talk about that. You know, we, we can't release that information. So I got absolutely nothing. So being a police officer and speaking to them actually was detrimental to my interview. But I wanted to give them the, I wanted to give them the heads up that I'm a cop. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. He just loves podcasts. Do you think that put your name on some list somewhere, some unofficial list within the state police office or just within law enforcement? Like, hey, keep an eye out for this guy because he's kind of crossing that blue line? Um, I hope not. I'm, I hope not. I think that that would be uh, childish, <laughs> but I don't know. Agreed. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming no. You never know if someone has a vendetta or something. I haven't, and, you know, admittedly, I haven't been very um, easy on the police departments in my podcast. And I think that they should be more transparent. And when, when I say stuff like that, I am coming from that on the other side of it. I'm not saying that as a cop. I'm saying that as just, you know, your average citizen that I think that it would, it would help a lot if the police departments, both police departments, New York state police and the New Hampshire state police. I wish they were a lot more transparent. I want to walk through this accident just in my own head and stop me. If anything sounds like it's not realistic. So they're, they're, they're driving along the highway there's probably traffic around, so you can assume they're going anywhere from 40 miles an hour to 60, 65 miles an hour. Just based on the fact, I feel like if they were going any faster than that, it would have been more serious. So you have the the perpetrator in his green Jeep Cherokee pass by Adderson, and he goes to change the lane to go back into the lane and doesn't see him in his blind spot, and that's where they get into um, a little bit of a... Or he drifts over, either way, it doesn't matter. So if so, he's passing on the left, which would put uh, the damage to the right, to the driver's side on uh, in Addison's car. They pull over because there's been an accident, and you just don't continue on. I'm assuming they, they at least change from the right-hand lane into the breakdown lane, at the, at the minimum. So the Jeep is ahead of him. That's what I'm assuming is, is happening. The Jeep's ahead of him because they he drifts a little bit. And then they, I'm assuming it's because of the damage on the driver's side. He was on, he was to his left. So he would go ahead of him. They would go over to the right and pull over. So Addison had a, a clear view of the license plate the entire time this car, in my opinion, was in front of him. Maybe, maybe the green Cherokee, um, applied his brakes and went behind him, but I don't know why he would do that after hitting him. Usually when that happens, the person who's hit will hit his brakes or her brakes and 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 fall back. And then you then you pull over. That just seems like an instinctual reaction. And they probably got out both of their driver's side doors so those cars passing on the highway, you know, on 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 that side of them, not on the not on the on the woods or whatever, not on the non highway side. So that was that's just how it's playing out in my head. Does that feel like a realistic scenario? Actually, yes. That's the first thing I thought of. 
However, what's interesting, and this became a question for me, when you watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode where they recreated this incident, it's just the opposite. Richard's car is in front of the perpetrator's car, and he gets out and immediately confronts the perpetrator. Now, I don't know why Unsolved Mysteries decided to portray the incident like that. Maybe the police had told them that that was how they believed the positioning of the cars were that night. Maybe that's what they had gotten from from the passersby who did eventually call in and say that they had seen the incident, but they never released the positioning of the cars. That That's when interesting. I, when I was trying to recreate it in my own mind, I did it the exact same way. I thought that because you can make the case that he was passing Richard's car in the left lane, then sideswiped him, yeah. he would have been at least a little in front of him. Um, so when they pulled over, his car would be you know, in front of him. And there you have a perfect view of the license plate. That's not to say that you're going to remember everything, but I can, I, I can look at a license plate and I can remember the first two letters of it. That's interesting. The positioning of the car, I don't know why that's uh, like sticking out in my head, but that's really fascinating, fascinating to me. And I think it says a lot about who the aggressor w- would have been in that situation. Yeah. But like I said, the police have never released, even in the, even the positioning of the car. And I'm assuming that, which is all I do all the time, I assume, I presume. Um, but We like to call it theorizing. You theorized. All right. So I am theorizing <laughs> that when the police did this reporting and they had to put the incident to paper, they probably would have done an accident report as well. And in that accident report, which is separate from the incident report, they may have theorized themselves who was in front and who was behind. Right. But that, you know, when I when I asked them for any information, they just shot me down. Now, uh, in your research, did you learn if the police put out some kind of beyond the lookout to toll booth people. We we were talking about this in the office too. Um, you know, and maybe it's a total long shot needle in a haystack type thing. But if, if this guy was traveling from New Hampshire, there's a good chance he was driving on at least a toll road, perhaps the mass pike, uh, which connects to interstate 84, which is a toll road. And you would have had to have given people change and dollar bills at that time. Uh, so I, I was just wondering, like, is that is that a protocol? If something crazy like this happens, do they put out some kind of beyond the lookout, or do they end up asking these toll booth workers? I don't know if they ask the toll booth workers, but they definitely put an, out an alert for the Green Jeep Cherokee with uh, New Hampshire license plates. The police, the New York State Police trooper who responded to this. Um, to this incident when after Richard called, um, got there within 10 minutes. If you put the time frames together, after he was shot, Richard called 911, and maybe some passerbys who had cell phones at the time called 911 as well, although no one has ever come forward saying that they witnessed the actual shooting. They, there were people who witnessed an argument on the side of the road, 
on, but no one witnessed the shooting. So Richard stays on the phone for about nine minutes, and that's exactly the amount of time that it takes for the first police officer to respond to the scene. Um, newspaper coverage did say that they spent a good amount of time then canvassing the area and going up and down 84 and, you know, some side roads looking for this green Jeep Cherokee. But, and it's so strange to say, but 22 years ago was a completely different, it was a different time. There was no, although Easy Pass had been invented, it wasn't as widespread as it is today. There are not cameras on every bridge. There are not license plate readers on so many police cars and, you know, poles that they attach these license plate readers to. I, I have no doubt had it happened today, they would have gotten a license plate. They would have gotten a video. They would have had some tracking to allow them to get a better um, idea of who this person was. But back in the day, no. Although the, the newspapers did report that they conducted a very thorough search and canvas on the roads for that Green Street Cherokee. So February 5th was in 1997 was a Wednesday. Do you know what time this happened? What time of day? Uh, approximately 6 o'clock. So you're, it's right in the middle of rush hour. Right in the middle of rush hour. I-84 is not a terribly busy interstate. It's two-lane highway. Trucks are on that road as well. But it's 6 o'clock in February, um, and I believe sunset was between 5.15 and 5.30. Yeah, definitely so be dark. it's getting dark. Yep. Um, we know we can only guess whether or not they left their lights on when they exited their cars. Yeah. Like I said, it's not a terribly busy highway. Um, the police actually theorized that maybe 50 people had driven by at the time of the incident. Oh, that's it? Witnessed the... 50 to 70? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that's a lot of witnesses when you're talking about a witness to a murder, 50 to 70. But in context of a highway, I, I was, I'm surprised. You have to assume that everybody's, everybody's a busybody looking at what's going on on the side of the road. There's some people probably just want to get home, you know? And then you have that other, you have that other, you know, type of person who I'm not getting involved. Yeah, it absolutely. Doesn't involve yep. me. You know, I'm looking the other way. People love looking at accidents. A lot of rubberneckers out there, and uh, but by all accounts, if this there's wasn't... a fight, well, people love looking at fights. Too. But they didn't like come to fisticuffs. They were talking. You could not you could, quite in but, the dark. You could easily drive by that and just see two cars and two guys talking. But there were witnesses who said they could see fighting yeah. or arguing. Yes, they could see um, two people arguing on the side of the road. But then, when you think that eyewitnesses are the worst. It's the, it's the worst piece of evidence for the police, you know, because yeah. people can, can never really recreate the person that they've seen. And I, I, um, one of my episodes, I was looking at, you know, eyewitness accounts and police sketches. And this one article said, you know, our minds are, in, in, in terms of identifying people, our minds are set up to identify them out of a group of people. And they, in, in this article I read, it said, 
you know, you can easily identify Brad Pitt if he was walking through a crowd of people. But in terms of actually describing Brad Pitt to a police sketch artist is a lot more difficult. Definitely. So it's not entirely accurate. Whoever passed this would be describing, you know, the, the perpetrator. Right. I think out of everyone, probably Richard Anderson had the best idea of what this person looked like. What type of gun was used? A forty caliber handgun. Is that a common handgun for people who are gun enthusiasts? You're asking the wrong person because I'm definitely not a gun enthusiast. Um, however, I did some checks to find out forty calibers are a common round used by police departments. And so since the investigation headed up to Manchester initially, I did some checking on to see the police departments in, in New Hampshire, what kind of guns they had been issued at that time, 1997. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, which has jurisdiction in the Manchester area, were using nine nine millimeter handguns. Okay. The New Hampshire New Hampshire State Police at that time were either using nine millimeter. When they switched over from nine millimeter, they went to forty five caliber. So those two departments were ruled out if you make the assumption that this guy was carrying his service gun with him. Right. The Manchester Police Department at the time were issued 40 caliber handguns. And a 40 caliber handgun is, um, I just did a quick, uh, quick search here. That's something that uh, you'd see in like a, uh, like a Glock or a Smith and Wesson. And it's a heavier bullet. That's what I'm looking at. Um, it is, you know, a Glock and Smith and Wesson make 40 caliber or a Beretta. Um, I'm sure at the time, but it, it really depends on the round. Um, you could, the manufacturer of the actual ammunition. Um, but that is, it is a more powerful round than, say, a 9 millimeter handgun. And remember, Richard was shot one time in the chest, and I'll throw out some police jargon, center mass, one time in the chest, and that was it. Police never even released the fact whether they were able to recover the shell casing. Is that like uh, like your training? Like does, does when your, you're aiming at somebody? Yeah, when you're aiming, do you aim where the killer shot, Richard? Center mass. That's that's what you're taught. And the, the rationale for that is that you, at least in my department, that you aim center mass, and after all your training in a situation where, God forbid, you do have to pull your firearm and use it, your muscle memory kicks in. And that is the best place to stop someone. So you're always you're always trained to hit that same area all the time, and they call it center mass. For that unfortunate situation where you have to draw your gun, you're not thinking anymore. We're confident that this is a handgun that was pulled that held that forty caliber round, or could it be possible that a rifle could could carry the same caliber? Again, I'm not a gun enthusiast, but I. I can only imagine that if this guy had been on the side of the road with, say, a rifle 
then a lot more people would have noticed. Whereas you can conceal a handgun in a holster, in your waist, it, it, it just would make a lot more sense. And then also, who wants to catch, if you're visiting from another state, are you going to just have a rifle handy in your car? Unless you're a psycho. Or, or yeah, or a hunter has like the gun racks or whatever. But I would imagine that um, Adderson would have immediately gone back to his car if he saw the guy come out with a rifle or go back to the Jeep and then come back with a rifle. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I, I think it's safe to assume that this guy did not come out of his car with a rifle. I'm just, I'm just wondering because it's in articles that it was, it was a handgun. I, I, maybe he told the 911 uh, dispatch that he was shot and they asked him, maybe that was part of the call. It's very possible that he, but he actually, that was one of the, um, that was in that 20 seconds or 30 seconds that was released on Unsolved Mysteries. You can hear Richard say, he just put out, he just pulled out a gun and shot me. Now let's, let's imagine for a second that this, this guy has an administrative position in some, uh, police, uh, office do you know of any investigators or like like detectives or police officers who would stick their neck out and cover for their boss for murder? You, do you know what I mean? Like, I I know that uh, that the case kind of makes police well. It's it's kind of an uncomfortable situation because you have to ask the question: Could there be a a conspiracy and a cover up? But I guess my question is. You're you're a cop. Like I can't imagine you would cover for your boss if he murdered someone in cold blood. No, I and you know I can only speak for myself, and I can tell you that I would never cover up for someone because being complicit in a in a situation like this, in some ways, is even more heinous than the act itself. And I am not downgrading what happened, but say, say it was a cop and he got involved in this car accident and he and Richard came out and they both lost their tempers. And in one swift instance, he was so frightened that he pulled his gun and shot him. And now he's standing on the side of the road thinking to himself, what did I do? And he gets back into his car and leaves out of fear. Then he goes off and someone finds out about it. He still committed homicide. But we don't know what was going through his mind at that time. Maybe he had no malicious thoughts whatsoever. Maybe he just got caught up in the moment and was so frightened and had never been in a situation where he thought that this guy, Richard Addison, may do him bodily harm. And that was the only way that he knew how to protect himself. And then he goes off and he tells someone, and that guy hides it, or he becomes complicit in covering it up. That guy has ill intentions. Maybe the original guy didn't, and I'm not, and you know I'm just speculating. But that becomes that in that scenario, his cover up is not telling anyone would become worse than the crime itself. Yeah, I completely agree with that because what you're talking about is like a. Uh, a uh, an instance where someone loses their temper and it wasn't premeditated and now you have a, 
someone who is deliberately being a conspirator to this moment that was not premeditated. So that is a more heinous uh, approach to to this uh, to to this murder. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, until the New York State Police find out who shot and killed Richard Adderson, we'll never know. Um, but I do like talking about it because I do like throwing it out there, and maybe I will piss someone off so much that they'll come out and say, "No, that's not how it happened." Right. You know, that's my intention. But getting back to your original question, no, I would never cover it up. But my buddy who who's on the show, Mr. Swim Turkey, he, he and I had a, a good conversation last month about cover-ups. And when he did some research on the whole idea of cover-ups, one of the thing, one of the uh, topics that came up constantly in his search was the blue wall of silence. Today's a completely different time, and, and, and it's remarkable how much has changed in the last 22 years since Richard was shot and killed. But the fact that cell phones with cameras were invented has changed policing dramatically. Even in the short time that I've been a cop, because I was a cop before cell phones were prolific and even at the time when I first came on the job, you had flip phones and the cameras were crappy, pixelated, couldn't really catch anything. Now you have these, now you have cell phones where people can make independent films from their phones. Right. So it's just, it's, it's a really different time. Back in the day, there were some departments that were able to keep secrets secret forever. Yeah. So it was easier to do back uh, back years ago before all the new technology. That does make uh, complete sense. And that also reminds me that the killer today of Richard Adderson, he would be somewhere around 70, it sounds like. Yeah, so he was 47 at the time. He would just have hit 69. And the killer was described at, at around, as uh, somewhere around his 50s? Yeah, 40s or 50s. So they were pretty much about the same age, and uh, he would be, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Anyone listening out there, if your uh, grandfather had a green Jeep Grand Cherokee, send us an email. Or a forty caliber pistol. There was this incident with the, the attorney in New York. Can you fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. The, the story goes that after the New York State Police had headed up to Manchester, and this was before they found out anything about a law firm in Manchester, but they had pinpointed Manchester. One of the New York State police investigators actually came out and said that the evidence that they had collected led them to believe that the person had ties to the Manchester area. So that was February, March. And then in April, New York police had found out that there was an attorney out of a Manchester-based law firm that was inquiring about the homicide. And supposedly, he had been calling up New York public libraries 
and asking if they had any articles on the Addison homicide. That touched off the librarian who was speaking with him to call the New York State Police and let them know that there's a, a lawyer from Manchester who's asking these questions. They got in touch with that attorney, and that attorney was not helpful at all. And that attorney quoted attorney-client privilege and essentially cut off all communication with the New York State Police. And in fact, his firm then hired an outside attorney to represent the firm when dealing with the Dutchess County District Attorney's Office, the district attorney that would prosecute this case. It wasn't until 1998 that the client of that Manchester firm switched lawyers. He then enlisted the help of a Concord attorney, and this Concord attorney by the name of James Moore then told, uh, he told the union leader in Manchester that his, that his client had been cleared and that the New York, he allowed the New York State Police to talk with his client, and New York State Police did verify what this attorney said in terms of clearing him. But there's so many questions that are left unanswered, and there's so many different things that this new attorney was saying. So he was the second attorney, this James Moore. He was putting out some information that just didn't make sense. The, the first attorney from Manchester was a very well-skilled, capable criminal defense attorney. I just don't see someone of that caliber making a rookie mistake by calling up a New York library and then giving your name and phone number to that librarian. I, that's why they have private investigators. That's why these law firms employ private investigators to, all, to do all the dirty work. So that was, that was one issue I took with the second attorney um, and his, you know, reasoning why this escalated. And he made the case that his client had enlisted the help of the first attorney in Manchester and then went a year and a half in the dark, off the grid, not knowing anything that was happening in the case. Furthermore, that original attorney never told his client that the police were continuing to ask the firm if they could meet with the client. Yeah, either something's going on, well, obviously something's going on behind the scenes, or they just hit su such a dead end and they were stonewalled. That's what it sounds like to me a little bit. I went up to Manchester earlier last year, and I did the same thing that the New York State Police did. When they knew that the client was had enlisted the, uh, the assistance of that law firm, New York State Police, and this was a, a brilliant idea, they went up and handed out flyers in front of that law firm for hours. That's great. That's, that's great. And, you know, hoping that someone had recognized this guy going to the law firm. So I did that as well. I actually took that original police sketch, and I had someone age it 20 years. And the sketch that they had made from that original police sketch was unbelievable, so realistic. That police sketch that they released was, you know, a two-dimensional drawing. The person who did my sketch, just so talented, and I went up there hoping that someone may have recognized that guy. 
and I met a uh, I met a mailman who said, "Yeah, I deliver I deliver mail to this guy," and he was telling me about the guy, and I said, "No, nah, that's definitely not him." But that was the first instance where I started to think about that pitchfork mentality. And then I'm thinking, you know, the police in releasing sketches or releasing information, really, they have to be prepared for what comes in at that point. Because you can have everyone call and say, I'm living next to the murderer. Yeah, for real. Or in this case, have so few people, you know, volunteer any information. And we can find this updated sketch on your Twitter, right? Yeah, it's on my, um, it's on Twitter and it's on Instagram. And if it's not, I'll definitely put it on tonight. That original yeah, it's sketch. A, we're looking Police at it now. Actually, it's amazing. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, the other thing about the sketch is that police actually released three different sketches. And that's definitely on Instagram and Twitter. I mean, the guy's, the shape of that suspect's face all stays the same, but his hair length changes. He has a beard. He doesn't have a beard. Um, and I just think that goes to speak of the unreliability of eyewitness accounts, you know? When you embarked on this journey of of the Slim Turkey podcast, did you talk to your superiors, or what, what process did you go through uh, deciding whether to do this or not? I went to my superior and put it out there. I never received a definitive answer as to whether or not I could do it, but then I went to an outside agency that checks if there were any conflicts of me doing this podcast and being a police officer. Were there any conflicts? And what I did find out is that the most important thing that this is a non-commercial podcast. So I don't make a cent on this. Everything that I spend on the podcast is out of pocket. Um, I'm not recouping any sort of money. I won't even cross-promote somebody else's podcast on my podcast, like an ad swap, because I don't want that to be misconstrued as potential revenue. So I I, I, I try to advertise on other people's podcasts, and I'll pay them. But I, you know, I tell them straight off the bat that I can't cross promote them. So that was the that was the first thing that they looked at. Are you trying to make money on this? And I said, not at all. It's a hobby. Again, I, you know, I don't want to blow too much smoke up your guys' butts, but your podcast inspired me, you know, and it, it really got me hooked on podcasts. So I said, yeah, I, I love it, and I've always been fascinated with true crime. So then they said, well, is it in your own jurisdiction and I said no the um, the homicide took place in another jurisdiction we have no jurisdiction in that area another interesting question was were you a cop at the time this homicide took place and I said no I I haven't been a cop since you know when this took place I have no ties to it whatsoever um, and at that point they gave me a preliminary yes you can do it assuming that everything that you've told us was honest and accurate, and I went forward with it. And, and the other thing that I made clear to them was that I'm not even saying who I, who I am, and I will not release what department I work for. So unless you know me and recognize my voice, you know, I could be anyone. Anyway. 
Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.